I'm Steve from Maryland who knows all about bandages and snake bites, but can never work out why mummies always have to curse so much. And I'm Al from New Zealand, who was once also not permitted to refuse Egyptian hospitality, but I managed to escape by finally agreeing to buy a carpet. We are Hammerama, two wizened, drooling relics squinting into our crystal LED displays to observe... Observe wondrous events from many, many decades ago. From a time when Cartabray ruled the British film industry. And many supernatural beings walked the land of the living. Steve, you all right? <laughs> I'm fine now. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, no, no, good. I'm good. Okay. <clears throat> Our theme is the opening title score to The Wonderful House of the Gorgon by the equally wonderful Reba Clark. And our film this month is Hammer's third swaddled waddle through the legends of ancient Egypt. And this time, three's a shroud. The Mummy Shroud from 1967. Nightmare terror from the tomb. An ancient curse comes to life to strangle the living and raise the dead. Here is the horror and the terror of a story that began in ancient Egypt. Take Kato Bey! When Kato Bey, a son of Pharaoh, died in the desert and was covered in the shroud that bore the sacred power of life and death. He says that death awaits all who disturb the resting place of Kato Bay. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the curse of the mummy's shroud. This is the leader of the British expedition who came in search of the tomb. The rich and ruthless financier who believes money can bribe even the devil himself. This is the son who knows there is no escape. Someone or, or something is trying to destroy us. I believe it'll find us wherever we go. The wife and mother trapped by the mummy's shroud. Ah, uh, I, I see death. This is Haiti, the crystal gazer who sees into the past and the terrifying future. This is the girl who is doomed, cursed by the mummy's shroud. You mean I'm going to die? <laughs> In a few minutes from now. <laughs> kill her! Kill her! Dead a thousand years, now he lives and breathes to avenge an ancient curse, to strangle the living. Praise the dead and prey upon human flesh. 
Mezaria, Egypt, 1920. The ancient remains of boy prince Kadabe are discovered by an archaeological expedition led by Sir Basil Walden, a clean-shaven Andre Morel, and financed by the odious Stanley Preston, John Phillips. Using the words inscribed upon the ancient shroud found covering Kadabe, the tomb guardian, Hazmid Roger Delgado, revives the mummy of the boy's former protector, Prim, to exact revenge on the expedition for defiling the prince's final rest. Among the party is Claire de Sangre, a resourceful and rather severe young woman, sensibly buttoned up at all times against a harsh desert sun and sand. However, in the publicity photographs accompanying this film, Claire is suddenly a barely dressed damsel in distress, lustfully menaced and then carried off by the rampaging Prim, in a sequence bearing no resemblance to anything on screen. Also in the film, the mummy shroud supported as a second feature, Frankenstein created woman. The female lead is attired at all times in ankle-length dresses and high collars. And yet, the production's publicity photographs depict her only just clad in what appears to be a bandaged bikini and manacles? Did a trashier parallel universe briefly overlap with her own in 1967, convincing many that these two restrained and character-driven films were in fact Dubious exploitation movies, perhaps an alternative reality where feminism and a woman's costume budget never existed, bleedingly intruded upon our own, leaving only some racy lobby cards behind. Very X-Files. <laughs> bravo, bravo. Initial thoughts. I'm going to go first, Steve. It's often said that the Mummy films are the forerunners of the 80s slasher films, and probably never more so than in this one. Given that this episode will be released so close to the spookiest time of the year, seems appropriate time to discuss this. Many filmmakers, including Hammer themselves, bemoaned the fact that there is really only one basic Mummy story and Hammer had already given audiences the greatest rap mix ever in 1959, ticking every box in The Mummy. Extravagant plans to make their second Mummy film something very different, alas, came to naught, and we'll cover that when we get to it. With The Mummy Shroud, though, I believe they succeed, because Prem is something else again. Most obviously, he looks like no other mummy we've ever seen, and that's ironic because he's probably the most closely based on the real thing. The mummy of the Roman man in the British Museum, dating to the later Egyptian Ptolemaic period, was the model for Prem, with ornamental sashes and cords on his torso, distinctive woven gauntlets, and a full head mask depicting an abstract likeness of the once living subject. And this is where the tie-in to Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers begins. Prem is a silent, masked killer. Like those anti-heroes two decades into the future, Prem can move like lightning when he needs to. 
but also has the knack of suddenly appearing behind his victims or lunging from unexpected dark corners, outpacing completely the slowly shambling mummies of the Universal films. And then there are the kills. Again, like the slashes to come, Prem shows a flair for innovation and variety, mainly abandoning strangulation for skull-crushing, acid-burning, and in poor Longbarrow's case, employing the ancient Glaswegian technique of assisting someone to leave an establishment via the upstairs windy. And finally, Prem even literally becomes a would-be axe murderer, silently stalking our hero and heroine in a scenario which would become very familiar to future audiences. So as Halloween approaches, I think the Mummy Shroud actually turned out to be a very appropriate choice. I think so too, and it was like sheer luck of the die roll, thankfully, because Whitney and Daphne picked the number for us. I've never seen the Mummy Shroud before. So all I can compare it to with the Hammer is the first one, 1959, one that we talked about, which was, to me, my favorite Mummy movie. You know, yeah. like we talked about that earlier. Big differences between the two, as you already brought up. And I think, the, to me, the biggest difference is this being an ensemble cast. Mm. So you're focused a little bit on everybody. In this one, you're following multiple journeys. And uh, I think it works well in that you have such strong characters interwoven into the story. Um, some of them you just despise. I mean, the one played by John Phillips was just, you know, the despicable person. He's he's. Oh, I'm this tough, strong guy. Oh, you guys go in there. I'll stay out here. You know, so it's, you know, that dynamic I just loved. Of course, Michael Ripper doing such a wonderful job. Mm. And it's one of these nice movies to see him highlighted for more than just a scene or two where he's in multiple scenes. Mm -hmm. And the chemistry that Michael Ripper and John Phillips have together is just wonderful as the aristocrat and the subservient person. But what I loved most about this movie initially is the, the three female characters. All of them were strong females, one on the side of evil and the other on the side of good. And none of them were weak. None of them were these weak need type of things. That was John Phillips. <laughs> he was the weak need um damsel in distress type character. And I liked that. It was a nice change. My initial impression is it was it was enjoyable um, ensemble piece. And it was quite different than your typical mummy movie. I think we're definitely in sync there, Steve. I mean, one of the criticisms this movie often receives is that it doesn't have any of Hammer's big names in it. If you don't count Michael Ripper, of course. But instead of the star names, what we have is an amazing ensemble piece, as you've mentioned. Really excellent actors interacting with each other in fascinating ways with really, really well-written characters. I like to think of this film as one of Hammer's hidden gems. And in full disclosure, you had to buy this movie, didn't you, Steve? At the time we were doing this episode, it, I could not find it streaming anywhere and i have quite a few hammer movies but nowhere near what a lot of hammer fans would have i probably got maybe half of them ish you know somewhere around that and so i thought oh i could find this streaming and maybe just pay for a rental and nope but i got the blu-ray so and i'm happy to have the blu-ray so it's 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 a nice copy very good very well done by shout factory 
I was feeling quite guilty that Steve had to shell out some money and he was refusing to tell me whether he actually enjoyed the film until we until we started recording. Sadist. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you do, do your little inner Michael Ripper now, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, would you like to talk about your favorite scene, Steve? I, I have um, two. I'm going to share one now, then I'll let you. I'll go to you, and then I'll right. see if you. Because a lot of times you and I end up matching up. One of my favorite scenes was early on, and that's mm-hmm. the tenth scene where Claire is there with uh, the son. And of course, Andre Morel playing the professor and or the doctor, and they're all talking in the tent with the storm. And they've already realized that she's somewhat clairvoyant. She can predict the future. She's predicted a lot of things accurately prior to the film starting. Mm-hmm. And she's telling them about how they're going to find the tomb soon and all this stuff. And they're all happy and they're all they're like, this is great. Let's have, all have a great mouthful of water because the soon we'll be done with this. And then... As she gets the water bottle, she drops the other shoe, so to speak. And it's like, yes, but after we leave the desert, some of us will still die, you know? And you can see the looks in their faces. So what I loved about it is the reaction to what she's saying, the horror, because they've already been out there for so long and thinking, oh, we're going to be done to go from that joyous moment to she's been right practically all the time. Which of us is going to die? And I, I just thought... It was very well acted. It's one of those quiet scenes, but it sets the atmosphere up for this this group that we're all supposed to care about, this four people. Very well done. I really, really like Claire, but I think her social skills need some some work. (laughs) She must be. She's not a people person. (laughs) She's not a people person. She's probably not the life and soul of a party. And when she drops that revelation on everyone, I think... She could possibly have worded it a little bit more sensitively. I'm going to go for a very obvious one. Like yourself, I've got two scenes because I was convinced you were going to nick at least one of them. I'm going to go with my most obvious one first, and that is Long Barrow's death. Now, we've already talked about what an incredible performance Michael Ripper gives in this film. I really do think it's probably the best one that he ever gave in a Hammer film. And have you ever loved him more than as Long Barrow? It's a heartbreaking performance of a, of a man who's subservient to a loathsome and bullying employer. We've all been there. Suffering every kind of indignity just to do his job as best he can. So he immediately gains our sympathy. And this increases as we see him desperately try to contain his despair when Preston denies him passage home. But even more affecting is Longbarrow's final moments when he accidentally breaks his glasses and actually starts to cry. I was almost crying myself. And shortly afterwards, confronted by the mummy and about to die horribly because he can't see properly, it's really heartbreaking to see him actually smile apologetically at this figure in his doorway because he's so so conditioned to ingratiate himself to everyone that he meets. 
and of course he has no idea of the horrible danger that he's in. So an incredibly emotionally affecting performance and it just shows what an amazing actor Michael Ripper was and maybe we all wish that he got to do more. It's one of those things when you have a great character actor you always wish that they do more and it's one of those things sometimes I always think if you're left wanting more like I wish you had more that's that's where you always want to drop the mic and walk away. And I guess it's a strange thing to say as well, because as we all know, he, he was probably the actor who was in more Hammer films than anyone else. So I guess we, we did get quite a lot of Michael Ripper. We're always like, can we have a little more? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said you had another scene, Steve. Yeah, actually, in this one, every scene that Elizabeth Sellers was in with John Phillips. You're going to take my scene? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because... Go on. You could have thrown your second one out already. <laughs> I could, I could. <laughs> well, we'll both talk about this scene. We can both talk about this scene okay. together, since it's the next, mm-hmm. since it's a bonus scene for both of us, and, mm-hmm. and and we might, we're probably going to have some different light with it. But I love her facial expressions and looks of this mm. this man who's just a a powerful weakling, powerful mm. financially, likes to flaunt his power, likes to be he's pompous. Let's put it that way, mm. and. And, and, and she knows this because they've been married for 26 years. So she knows exactly his strengths and weaknesses. And she already knows he's going to run when this all comes up. And she's not going to run. And I love it. I love it when he goes, why aren't you going to run? I never went in the two. I have nothing to fear. She puzzled it all out. And that look of like just watching him squirm and knowing that she's perfectly safe. Oh, it was delightful because she knows it's like, you're going to get your comeuppance and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. And all she has to do is just watch. I mean, she might've been rooting for this day for who knows how long. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what the, I can't imagine being married to a person like that. And the, and the horrors of dealing with them on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. It's not exactly the scene that I was going to mention, but it's got a lot of the same factors. And you mentioning the Preston's I think it's one of the most complex relationships ever depicted in a Hammer film because Stanley's clearly a braggart and a bully, while Barbara sort of calmly radiates the true strength, just as you were saying, Steve. But she never actively challenges his despicable behavior, but her disapproval is never in any doubt. And I think probably a lesser script and performances would have had them, I don't know, in regular shouting matches maybe. But this dynamic is far more subtle and far more deep until finally his cowardly abandonment of everyone turns her feelings from pity to disgust which is what we've all been feeling all the way through the film. His embarrassed farewell to his wife is really cringy. It's really hard to watch because he's very aware that she's never going to want to see him again. And by this stage, she's not even able to tolerate the swift peck on the forehead that, that he tries to give her and she turns away. But what I really like about this scene is that it's filmed in extreme long shot. It's not filmed as a close-up. And this seems odd at first, but I think it actually emphasizes the distance between them and the lack of any real emotional interaction. While we as an audience, we're kind of pulled back and we're watching from afar as their broken marriage finally recedes into nothingness. Her acting was just so impressive. Yeah. Her, that's what I loved about her reactions to him. 
her disapproval was always there and he was very aware of it but she didn't have to say a thing as you say her facial expressions her body language that was all it took and I've been on the receiving end of that <laughs> sometimes. I, I think I have too. And um, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, whatever you want to say, if anybody has been in a relationship long enough, we've all been in a receiving end. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I'm going to talk about reviews now. But now we have to do some reviews. <laughs> we have to do the reviews. Okay. <laughs> I'll make it as painless as possible. No, I'll just joke. <laughs> I know, I know. Hey, Al, you know what time it is? It's review, review time. time. <laughs> In Films and Filming, Volume 13, Number 11, from August 1967, Richard Davis wrote, If we must have more mummy shrouds, this one is as good as any, and better than most. Amusing, directed with style, thus perpetuating the argument in favour of the writer-director. Now, I picked that because it is almost impossible to find a good contemporary review. This is probably the most complimentary one that I could find. It makes me a little bit sad, and it also, at the same time, convinces me that some films that deserve to be appreciated just don't get the love that they're really entitled to at the time, and sometimes, maybe like fine wine, it takes critics a while to warm up to them. Shooting forward to 2013, Diabolique magazine reviewed the Blu-ray release, which Steve has recently bought. Sam Dayong wrote, The Mummy Shroud is not the most exciting Hammer film. It plods along, hoping that its competent, stylish death scenes will cover up its lack of originality or depth of plot. It was the final film to be shot at the famous Bray Studios and lacks any of their major stars. Though it is considered one of the studio's lesser efforts, The Mummy Shroud still contains some of the chills, visual thrills and workmanlike ethic that make even their lesser-known efforts beloved by many horror fans. So once again, a harsh but maybe fair review. As usual, Steve, we don't necessarily have to agree with them, but the whole point of the segment is to try and show how attitudes towards movies shift over, over the decades. Oh, yeah, and everybody's entitled to their opinion and there are certain movies that I love that other people don't like and vice versa. Just the same with you and me. There's movies that you and I mm. disagree on and agree, mostly we agree on a lot of things, but there's ones we disagree yeah. on here and there. And When you're wrong about a film, we tend to disagree, but um, mostly we agree. <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe the first time where the reviews I've found just haven't liked the film, but I think you and I tend to be more willing to see the good aspects of a, of a movie. So, shall we talk about the poster? And when I say the poster, I mean the poster because there's only one as far as I'm concerned, Steve. I'm looking at it right now. And listeners, you can, you'll be able to see it like if you go to our Facebook page. As I said, there's only one. The poster is interesting in that yeah. knowing that this movie came out in 1967, I look at the, t the top of the mummy's head. We have a tree. We got a graveyard. We got people running around. I'm thinking right away, Night of the Living Dead. Because there's nothing there that really comes from this movie. <laughs> All right, the mommy looks really well done. I love the eyes, the glare, the fist. Yes. And then you got the barely clad woman from that parallel universe. 
<laughs> being held in his fist. So I look at like a King Kong reference. Maybe you as an artist can figure that out for me and puzzle that out. How that applies. It's a nice piece. It has a nice look to it, but it, I don't see how it fits the title. Hmm. And then having seen the movie, it even fits less. But I love the wording. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood. Beware the beat of the claw-wrapped feet. feet. Yes. If you can only have Boris Karloff saying those lines. <laughs> Agrees. Agrees. What do you think? Can you explain this poster to me, or is this beyond explaining? In a word, no. I completely feel your confusion. The cinematic mummy seems forever cursed to have a quality A-list first film, only to be followed around by B-movie sequels like Embarrassing Relatives. Once again, because there really is only one mummy story, and in Hammer's case, as I said, they perfected it back in 1959, and so because this movie was relegated to being the supporting feature for Frankenstein-created woman, the Mummy Shroud only seems to have been given the budget for one poster. At first glance, it seems to me to be DC Comics' Swamp Thing, grown to giant size and holding a squirming woman, barely dressed, in his huge grip. And I have to confess that this really confused me when I researched this episode, to say nothing of the tree growing out of his head. And I'm embarrassed to admit that although I was certain that there had been plans by Hammer to portray a giant-sized mummy, and there definitely were, it wasn't for this film, but the preceding one, the second mummy film that Hammer did, 1964's Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. But when I saw this poster, I assumed that the concept had been created for the mummy shroud, and I spent an entire fruitless evening trawling through every hammer book that I own and the internet, increasingly annoyed that I could find no reference to a giant prem. Because there never was one, except on the poster. And so, listeners, that's why I'd never call myself an expert. Like prem, my head is actually full of sand. I'm going to correct you on something. It's never a totally fruitless evening to go through <laughs> Hammer books and to dive deep in the web on Hammer stuff. I'm sure you found some things there that made it somewhat worthwhile. It's just you didn't get the result you wanted. But I'd never say it's fruitless. No, that's a very good point. I certainly did finally find something that made me feel like a complete idiot. And that was that the giant mummy concept was for the second Hammer Mummy film, not, uh, not this one. Even if the poster would lead you to believe otherwise. If only we would have done this series in sequential order. You would never have had that evening. <laughs> you, see, you see what happens when we try to be clever? Or when I try to be clever anyway. Oh, but Alistair, yes. I got good news for have you. you. This episode, mm -hmm. this episode, we have a sponsor. We have an ad. <laughs> Yay! You know, I, I knew you'd be excited about this. Yes, listeners, we got an ad from a new security firm. Actually, I think they're very old, but they've come to us. The Mummy's Security Firm. If you want your house protected forever and ever, our clothed hands, our clothed feet will protect whatever you need protecting. We will always find that burglar wherever they go. It might take us a day or two or a year or two, but we never rest until we get your item back. We will protect your items from beyond the grave. 
we give you a lifetime, multiple lifetime guarantee. The Mummy Security Firm. Send your information to us by papyrus to Egypt, and we will send you your mummy as soon as we can. <laughs> Do you know, like most of your more out there uh, <laughs> uh, suggestions, once again, this would work. <laughs> Because that mummy just does not give up. Well, guess what, Steve? We're at closing thoughts already. And I'm going to go first. I had suggested that this creates a different approach to a mummy film in its full depiction of Prem as a masked proto-slasher. But it also makes a radical departure from Hammer horror films in general with the character of Claire de Sangre, played by model Maggie Kimberley. Now, not only is she a crafty linguist and a highly competent archaeologist, but she also appears, as we've discussed, to be psychic. So we actually have a female character possessed of not only technical skills far beyond her male counterparts, but precognitive knowledge as well. She's calm, resourceful, and determined, and she even pulls Batman's trick at one point of silently leaving a room when the other characters glance away, her sudden disappearance startling them when they turn back. She shows courage in refusing to accompany Stanley in his despicable escape from Egypt, and resourcefulness in consulting Haiti to discover how to atone for the harm and blasphemy that her party has caused. And when this fails through no fault of hers, it is actually Claire who destroys the monster. From what I've read, Maggie Kimberley has received some criticism for her rather distant performance, but I think it makes the character of Claire even more unique. A hammer heroine who is cool, detached, independent and highly intelligent. And those cheekbones. I do have to say though that the extravagantly blonde Claire would have got nowhere in a hurry trying to get through busy Egyptian streets on her own. I'm married to a fair-haired lady and our own experiences in that country showed that even though a head covering is not required of tourists, the benign attention and curiosity that an unaccompanied Caucasian woman can accidentally cause in Islamic Egypt can actually be pretty overwhelming. So, Claire, if you want to get somewhere in a hurry, sorry to say, but you're probably better to take a guy with you. Over to you, Steve. That's, that's a tough one to follow up, but I agree with you with Claire's portrayal. I didn't know people were off-put by her performance, but it, to me it fits her character. And being clairvoyant, like... Back in the time when she's breaking the news, she probably, she might even know who's going to die and who's not. I mean, who knows? Could you imagine her saying mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Someone's going to die and you already know. Do you tell somebody? I mean, that's like, oh. If we go back to one of your favorite scenes, Claire probably would tell them. She probably <laughs> say, you're going to die and you're going to die and you're going to die. Sounds like, it's like Oprah. Yeah. And you get it and you get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, information you don't want to hear. I did like that the, the mummy wasn't a slow-moving thing. Mm -hmm. Also, going back to your reference to the Friday the 13th type movies of Jason and those kind of things, the kills were each done differently. And beside, where, where Christopher Lee's mummy was the traditional, you know, like one arm, arr, choke mode. It was nice to have that variety. So as you said in our mummy episode, he had his signature move. Which is good to have a signature move, but Prim being the, the servant that had to fight wars and stuff like that knew you had to use multiple weapons to do mm. multiple things. Good point. 
a lot of the things I enjoyed were the interaction with the ensemble cast. And there was some, some homages to the, the first Mummy movie where, you know, the, the guy took the um, easel that was mm. in the museum and stabbed it into the mm. chest. So you got mm. to see that and the mummy pulled that out. So I was like, oh, well, you know. So there were some nice little callbacks, whether intentional or unintentional. It was an enjoyable movie. It's not one of the better Hammer movies that I've seen, hmm. but it's definitely not, it's a movie worth seeing. And something else that I just wanted to mention just briefly, Roger Delgado. <sighs> At times, Hasmead is more frightening than Prem. And Roger Delgado has long been an actor who I've hugely admired. Obviously, I'm a massive Doctor Who fan. And I just want to make an appeal to those of you out there who might only have been fans of Doctor Who since its return in 2005. You might be well forgiven for thinking that Evil Time Lord, the Master, is actually a sort of cut-price version of Batman's Joker, played by otherwise very good actors. Well, I want you to do yourselves a massive favour and just watch a few minutes of the suavely menacing Roger Delgado as the master from the early 1970s and you will see in no time at all why this character that he established has lasted for five decades. You can almost say he gave a master class. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, I'd love him as the master in the Doctor Who series. I mean, he, he to me, is the definitive the master. But in this movie, he does a great job. I would love, I also liked his interaction with Catherine Lacey, the two yes. of them interacting. Part of me is almost thinking like if they would have shortened the prologue mm -hmm. and maybe, or maybe had the prologue explained between the two of them, you know, like maybe like a little flashback scene where it goes back, but it's the two of them talking about it and doing the narration that way. I think that's an absolutely fantastic idea because if there's one thing I could do to this film, it would be to remove that prologue. It's way below the quality of the rest of the film and depicting Prem as what looks like someone's geography teacher with a spray tan just doesn't do the film any favors at all. The interaction between Hasmeed and his mother Haiti was one of the highlights of the film. It almost gave me a sort of Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger vibe where the two main villains are a mother, a matriarch and her son. Using the crystal ball, somehow creating a flashback would have been a brilliant idea. Or it could have been Catherine Lacey when she's talking to Claire. And they could have had the flashback there. Hmm. But there's one thing we got to do. Yes. We have to roll the die for the next movie. We do. So, so let me roll. Number one. And for those wondering, number one is... Dracula. Yes. Two is Frankenstein. Three is... The Mummy. Four, science fiction. Double feature. Five is prehistoric. And number six, the experimental 70s. Yeah. I'm really happy about this, Steve. I've, I've been wanting to get back to the count for a while now. Obviously, we started Hammerama with Hammer's first Dracula film. And now we're going to do the sequel, which was made quite a few years later. Dracula, Prince of Darkness. We're very aware that Brides of Dracula from 1960 is technically Horror of Dracula's sequel. But as it doesn't actually have the Count in it, we're jumping ahead instead to his next appearance. Steve and I will cover the superb Brides of Dracula eventually, 
But in the meantime, you will be able to hear me talk about it with the wonderful Gru Crew on the Decades of Horror, the Classic Era podcast next month. Can't wait to see the count again. Mm, <laughs> me too. Me too. And listeners, you'll hear that in November. Mm. Send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook site. As always, I know I'm speaking for Al. I think we could both agree. We both love to hear the feedback and we're both loving that everybody has just been listening to us and enjoying the episodes. I hope everybody has a happy Halloween and thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone. Happy Halloween. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.